This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, October 10th, 2022. It's been 3,145 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 228 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth because the truth matters. As always, let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, our assessment on October 8th that there was a heightened risk of terror attacks on cities in central and western Ukraine through the weekend was unfortunately accurate, with over 80 cruise missiles and almost 20 drones hitting cities across Ukraine. Second, Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will likely continue as Russia wastes its limited military cruise missile assets on non-essential targets that won't change the war's outcome. Third, President Putin likely authorized the strikes to reinforce his declining stature with the Russian people, government, state media, and mill bloggers as he faces direct attacks for his handling of the special military operation. Fourth, Yesterday's attacks have the fingerprints of the newly appointed, quote, commander of the joint grouping of forces in the areas of the special military operation, end quote, General Sergei Sorovyakin. He is considered a ruthless commander and is supportive of using widespread bombing of civilians within cities to break the will of the people, having used the tactic in Syria. Fifth, We maintain our assessment that Russia is incapable of responding simultaneously to three counteroffensives in Luhansk, Kharkiv, and Kherson. Sixth, we maintain that if a Russian force of company size or larger surrenders in northern Kherson, it will create a cascade of surrendering Russian troops. Seventh, we maintain that those mass surrenders could become a logistical problem for Ukraine, which could overwhelm the ongoing counteroffensive. Eighth, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, as it would require striking what the Kremlin believes is Russian soil, and Russian forces are incapable of fighting in a conventional environment, let alone a CBRN setting. That's K 
chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Ninth, we maintain Russia's mobilization efforts are ineffective due to corruption, a lack of preparation, violation of the social contract with the Russian people, and conscripts being sent en masse to Ukraine without vital equipment or training. Tenth, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction instability paradox due to irresponsible language from the Kremlin, looming decisions from Moscow leadership, and the deteriorating kinetic warfare situation for Russian troops in Ukraine. And finally, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. Conscripts that were rushed to the Donbass in the past week have not slowed the deterioration and are not contributing to improving combat power. Let's get some regional updates, and since it's a Monday, check in on both belligerents' objectives, starting, of course, with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The Russian objective here is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold existing defensive lines, protect remaining lines of communication, called locks, those are supply lines, defend Kherson, prevent envelopment on the western side of the Dnipro River, and restrict insurgent activity. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. Ukrainian leadership is maintaining tight operational security in Kherson, where it's starting to appear that Russian troops are creating a new defensive line that is somewhat stable. There was good intelligence today on the ongoing fighting, which appears to be positional, probing for weakness, and spoiling attacks versus large-scale offensive operations. There was also excellent intelligence on territorial control, which has created a clearer picture of where the line of conflict is. Pro-Russian sources reported that Russian troops launched an offensive to recapture Ternovipodi, which was unsuccessful. The report provided additional confirmation that Ukraine controls the settlement. Russian sources claimed a Ukrainian reconnaissance unit attempted to advance on Maximivka. There have been reports of fighting in this area over the last five days. Our assessment on October 8th that the claims of a Russian withdrawal from Snikhorivka were likely false was accurate. Which is to say, our assessment was accurate, the claims of withdrawal were false. There is no indication that Russian troops withdrew from the town, which is critical to Russian defenses and ground lines of communication, which are just like lines of communication, only on the ground. Ukrainian sources reported that Bezimen is a no-man's land, but on the Ukrainian side of the line of conflict. This aligns with our previous assessment and mapping. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that a Russian motor infantry platoon attempted to advance on Davri Brid from Bruskinsk and suffered heavy losses. After the failed advance, Ukrainian positions were shelled by artillery and hit by Russian airstrikes. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian troops attempted to advance on Sadok and were unsuccessful at moving the line of conflict. Additional pictures showed Ukrainian forces in Novakamyanka, and Russian sources claimed that Ukrainian troops advanced from Trifonivka toward Piatikhatki. Some Ukrainian sources reported Piatikhatki had been liberated, but there wasn't any visual confirmation. 
The only area where there remains significant fog of war is south of Dudchene. OCS reported a kamikaze drone, likely an Iranian-sourced Shahed-136, struck Dudchene but did not cause significant damage. Some reports indicated that Sablukivka and Kachkarivka were under Ukrainian control, while others reported the two settlements were contested. Ihor Yosepenko, a member of the Kherson Regional Council, reported that Russian forces destroyed the T-403 highway bridge over the Sofiyevska-Balka estuary just north of Milova. Let's pause for some quick assessment here. Throughout the entire war, Russian forces in retreat have blown bridges when they have no intention of returning in that direction. This action does not trap any Russian forces north of the estuary, which can still maneuver to the west, but it does indicate that Russian troops plan to hold Milova or at least delay the advance of Ukrainian forces as new defenses are built further south. OCS reported that Russian troops were mining the new defensive line, indicating their position stabilizing. Based on the available social intelligence, we still consider Sablukivka and Kachkarivka contested, with Ukrainian troops likely in parts of Sablukivka. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed a heat anomaly at Daryivka, where Russian troops have attempted to maintain a pontoon bridge. It is likely that rockets fired by HIMARS hit the area. North of Kherson on October 8th, Russian-occupied Kiselivka was hit with up to five rockets, setting Russian fuel storage on fire. The Ukrainian Air Force performed nine airstrikes, and ground forces carried out 246 fire missions. OCS didn't indicate targets, and there wasn't any chatter on social media. Andrei Vladimirovich, the Russian-appointed deputy head of the Biloserka military civil administration of the same town, was badly injured in a bombing by insurgents on October 7th. He uses the codename Vampire, which is super charming, and reportedly suffered severe injuries to his legs and groin in the blast. Vitali Kim, Mikolaev Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the city of Mikolaev was hit by seven S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack. Air defenses shot down three more. A university, warehouses by the port, and apartment buildings were hit in the overnight attack, but there were no reports of casualties. Our assessment of Kherson and Mikolaev? We maintain that Russian troops will find it challenging to establish defensive lines with the Ukrainian military pressing on the line of conflict. There was a lot of information today that clarified that line of conflict, from Posad Pokrovsk to Dudchene. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia, where the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and ensure the area's civilian population is prepared in the event of a nuclear accident. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was mixed, with shelling continuing for the fourth day in a row. Despite ongoing attacks, engineers were able to reconnect the 750-kilovolt power line to the plant. The plant had been running on diesel backup generators since October 8th, 
when another round of shelling knocked out the only electrical connection to the plant. Although all six reactors are in a cold shutdown state, water circulation has to be maintained to keep the cores cool. All six reactors were operating normally, and there was no change in cooling or radiation levels. An industrial area between Enerjodar and ZNPP was shelled again, and another landmine spontaneously exploded near the plant. International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi condemned the missile attacks on the city of Zaporizhia and the shelling of Enerjodar, saying, quote, These military attacks in Zaporizhia and its vicinity increase the risk of a nuclear accident if they hit the plant's external power lines or make it more difficult to deliver vital supplies of fuel and equipment. End quote. The IAEA reported that a supply convoy carrying spare parts and diesel fuel was staged in Zaporizhia on Sunday. The convoy was not damaged, and no IAEA employees were harmed in a series of missile attacks on the city. Director Grossi is supposed to travel to the Russian Federation this week to discuss demilitarizing the plant. Valentin Reznichenko, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported Nikopol and Marchanets were hit by more than 70 grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The attack damaged a solar power plant and destroyed civilian housing and infrastructure. Fortunately, no injuries were reported. Russia continued missile attacks on Zaporizhia despite the alleged annexation and claims that the city is now part of Russia. Attacks on October 8th intentionally targeted residential areas, causing widespread destruction. A follow-up attack on October 9th also targeted civilian housing, destroying and damaging homes, and a third attack during the overnight hours hit more civilian housing. We'll have more information on this in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. The Russian objective here is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, defend the existing line of conflict, and end the insurrection that is throughout the Russian-controlled territory. The Ukrainian objective is to fix Russian assets in place to prevent redeployment, defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, interdict supplies and disrupt logistics, and support and expand the insurrection in occupied territories. So, we can really only report sporadic artillery fire from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Juliapola, Orkhiv, and Malishirbaki. There are significant rumors in the Russian information space that Ukrainian forces are preparing to launch a third counteroffensive from Juliapola towards Melitopol or Berdyansk, but we can't verify the veracity of the report. In southwestern Donetsk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, capture the rest of the oblast, maintain existing defensive lines, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. The Ukrainian objective is to lock Russian military assets in place, 
defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentrations and command and control sites, and interdict supplies and disrupt logistics. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, militia public relations channel reported fighting west of the city. They claimed to have destroyed a multiple launch rocket system, MLRS, and three armored vehicles, and that Ukraine executed over 250 fire missions in the occupied territory. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the DNR renewed attempts to advance on New York, but were unable to make any progress. North of Avdiivka, DNR militia forces continued attacks on Kamyanka, while to the south they attempted to advance on Nevelske and fought around the edges of Pisky and Pervomaisky. A video from the DNR militia showed Ukrainian positions about 200 meters southwest of the E-50 ring road south of Pervomaisky under a mortar attack. In Marinka, Ukrainian forces have almost returned to the line of conflict established in May. The DNR continued the military tradition of attempting to flank the city by attacking Pobida without moving the line of conflict. It is a long-standing tradition. A single Russian source claimed there was fighting in the eastern part of Novomikhailivka and that DNR forces had made gains into the town. We cannot verify the veracity of the report and did not adjust the map. In Andrivka, a Russian ammunition depot and ammo hauling train were attacked by rockets fired by HIMARS, creating a large explosion with several secondary blasts. In northeast Donetsk, the Russian objective is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, defend against Ukrainian advances toward Luhansk, and capture Bakhmut Solidar. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, minimize civilian casualties, and defend GLOCs, which are ground lines of communication, or supply lines. Fresh reinforcements of penal units from the private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, and Chechen fighters have reinforced the battle-weary forces attacking Solidar and Bakhmut and the towns to the south. There was intense fighting throughout the area. The orchestra of PMC Wagner attempted to advance on Solidar, but was only met with the beautiful music of Ukrainian light arms, artillery, and airstrikes. They did not enjoy the tune and retreated to their defensive positions. Despite artillery strikes and repeated ground attacks, Ukrainian forces maintained their defensive lines in southern Bakhmutske. Although neither belligerent has recently claimed to hold control of Mykolaivka Drucha after repeated Russian attacks on Kurdyumivka and Ozaryanivka, it seems unlikely the line of conflict is still east of the town. Fighting for control of Ozaryanivka continued, but was positional. It was unclear if the 1st Army Corps of the DNR 3rd Brigade was involved in the attack or not. Let's move on to Luhansk. The Russian objective here is to integrate the oblast into the Russian Federation, hold current defensive lines, and control insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to break Russian defensive lines, prevent the retreat of Russian soldiers from Lehman, make opportunistic territorial gains, support insurgents, and interdict supplies. Sergei Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that seven settlements in Luhansk had been liberated. All were south and southeast of Borova. Selmakivka, Andrivka in Luhansk, Nadia, 
Novoyerorivka, Krekivka, Novolyubivka, and Nevsky are all part of Free Ukraine. Some assessment here. It is highly likely that Proletarsky and Chernyshina are liberated, but there has been no report from either belligerent. If Russian forces remain in either settlement, they are encircled or at extreme risk of encirclement. It is also unlikely that Russian troops still remain in Myasozarivka. The Russian-controlled city of Svatov is within range of Ukrainian artillery, and Russian forces appear to have focused their resources on defending Kremina. Russian forces attacked Ukrainian positions in Terny, but were unsuccessful in their attempt to push the advancing Ukrainians back. There isn't any fighting within the immediate area of Kremina, but artillery duels are happening along the line of conflict. After more than a week of rumors and whispers, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, claimed that Ukrainian forces were attempting to advance into the Verkhnokamyanka oil refinery. The facility is a strategic location for future advances deeper into Luhansk and moving north toward Lusychansk. Russian sources claim that Starobilsk was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS, but didn't provide additional details beyond claiming several civilians were wounded. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. The Russian objective is to retreat and minimize casualties, prevent Ukrainian forces from advancing from their bridgeheads on the east bank of the Oskil River, and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate all of Kharkiv Oblast, sever G-locks into Luhansk, protect civilian lives, and defend the Ukrainian border. Ukraine now controls over 98% of the Kharkiv Oblast, and neither belligerent reported significant fighting east of the Oskil River. Russian forces launched a spoiling attack on the border town of Budarki in the northeast corner of Kharkiv. As part of a massive reprisal attack on civilians and civilian infrastructure, the city of Kharkiv was hit by three missiles or Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones. The attack targeted electrical infrastructure, knocking out power and water to parts of the city. Residents were urged to go to bomb shelters and await the all-clear signal. Follow-on attacks across Kharkiv, including the city, disabled power, water, communications, subway, and rail service. At the time of recording, widespread attacks were still ongoing in recently liberated areas. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, the Russian objective is to lock Ukrainian military resources in place and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to maintain the integrity of the international border, deter attacks, and protect civilian lives. Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Velika Pisarivka, Seredina Buda, Krasnopilia, Esmen and Miropilia were attacked by mine-scattering munitions, grad rockets fired by MLRS, artillery, and kamikaze drones. There was minor damage to civilian buildings, and more information is in the war crimes and human rights segment. Russian reprisal attacks for the strike on the Kerch Bridge in occupied Crimea hit Konotop in Sumy, knocking out electrical power and water service to large parts of the oblast. Governor Zhivitsky reported there were casualties and additional explosions. 
However, additional information was not available at the time of recording. Let's head over to the Kyiv region. The Russian objective here is to lock Ukrainian military resources in place and launch terror attacks on civilians in an attempt to break morale. The Ukrainian objective is to maintain the integrity of the international border, deter attacks, and protect civilian lives. In a series of reprisal attacks, Kyiv was rocked by 12 blasts from cruise missiles and Shahed-136 loitering munitions. Surveillance video showed a Russian cruise missile just missing the glass bridge, a pedestrian bridge connecting two parks. A second video showed at least one pedestrian near where the missile struck and appeared uninjured from the nearby blast. Debris collected from the site verified the attack was made by a KH-101 cruise missile. The office tower for Samsung's Ukraine headquarters was hit by at least two cruise missiles, causing the building to catch fire. Another cruise missile landed near an intersection as commuters started their day. At least seven vehicles were badly damaged or destroyed, with reports of casualties from all of them. At least one cruise missile hit the Taras Shevchenko University, with the attack caught on video by a student who was live-streaming at the time. Nearby Shevchenko Park was also hit by at least one cruise missile. Video after the attack showed the target was a vital and strategic military target— a children's playground. A missile struck nearby the central railroad station, shattering windows, but operations continued on all but the commuter train red line as more missiles and drones struck the city. Another missile damaged a thermal plant which delivers steam heat to homes and offices in parts of Kyiv. Exactly none of the missiles or drones targeted military infrastructure, decision-making centers, or government buildings. The attacks were random and concentrated in the downtown area. Geoconfirmation of the strikes showed that the main targets were the Ministry of Education building, a playground, the glass bridge, and likely a power plant by the Samsung building, resulting in the office tower being directly hit by at least two missiles. Residents evacuated to the metro system, which has the deepest subway tunnels in the world. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, the Ukrainian Air Force reported they shot down three cruise missiles and five Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones near and over Odessa. Explosions rang out across the city, but there were no reports of significant damage, power loss, or casualties. In western and central Ukraine, reprisal attacks continued across the region. Missiles struck Lviv, Rivne, Venetia, Ivano-Frankivsk, Zhitomir, and Kirovorod. Some oblasts had no power, water, or communications after the attacks. At least 15 missiles were fired at Lviv alone, with several striking the city. Large parts of the city had power, water, and communications services knocked out. Three missiles or drones struck energy infrastructure in Kremenchuk, knocking out power to at least part of the Poltava oblast. On the Russian front, Russian claims that rail service had already been restored to the Kerch Bridge were almost certainly false. The damaged rail cars remain on the bridge, while cranes using the other set of the tracks are working to remove the debris so an analysis can be made. A test group of 15 vehicles used part of the partially damaged roadway, which was reduced to a single one-way lane. 
Weight restrictions have been set to three and a half tons. For reference, that's equivalent to an American half-ton crew cab pickup truck loaded with five occupants and their luggage. Russia accused Ukraine of being behind the attack. It labeled the bridge as, quote, civilian infrastructure. Despite widespread evidence, it has been not just a vital line of communication, called a lock, that's a supply line, remember, but also the only lock to Russian-occupied Crimea. In Yaroslavl, a warehouse of the Russian Defense Ministry holding munitions for the Russian Navy caught fire. The area was being evacuated. This did not appear to be related to any attack or sabotage at the time of recording and was likely another Russian smoking accident. We would like to kindly remind you that cigarettes, combined with large quantities of poorly stored, outdated, and unstable explosives, can be hazardous to your health and to the health of those around you. This public health announcement has been brought to you by Common Sense. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Hours before reprisal attacks hit over a dozen Ukrainian cities, Russian President Vladimir Putin convened the Security Council to discuss possible actions against Ukraine for the attack on the Kerch Bridge over the weekend. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov tried to cool nuclear tensions, clarifying that the attack on the bridge did not meet the threshold for a nuclear reprisal, saying in response to an I-only-do-what-I'm-told-to-serve-the-state member of the Russian press corps, quote, No, it is a totally incorrect formulation of the question, end quote. Okay, but that didn't make me feel any better. Shortly after almost 90 missiles were fired at targets across Ukraine, President Putin made a speech on TV claiming the precision attacks targeted military, energy, and communication targets in response to the Crimea bridge attack, adding, quote, If attempts to carry out terrorist attacks continue, Russia's response will be severe and at the level of the threats facing it. Nobody should be in any doubt. End quote. Okay, that was also not reassuring. The European Union's Commissioner for Justice, Didier Reinders of Belgium, had to take shelter during the Russian missile attacks on Kyiv. The EU commissioner wrote on Twitter, quote, A series of explosions occurred in downtown Kyiv this morning. Thanks to the security personnel's prompt reaction, my team and I were quickly moved to the basement of the hotel. We are safe and waiting for the development of the situation. End quote. The Russian ambassador to Moldova was summoned to Chisinau after three Russian cruise missiles violated the nation's airspace. Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, reported 83 missiles were fired over three hours, with 45 shot down. At least 17 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones were used to attack Ukrainian cities. At the time of recording, there was no electricity in the Lviv, Poltava, Sumy, Kharkiv, and Ternopil oblasts, and almost every other region was experiencing at least a partial outage. There was no information on the status of Ukraine's four nuclear power plants and if they successfully rolled over to generator power. Speaking of rolling over, let's talk about Russian mobilization. Self-declared Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko announced that Russian troops would return to his nation to create a joint task force. Russia has upgraded several areas of military infrastructure in Belarus, 
while simultaneously drawing down military equipment and munitions from the isolated Baltic state. Lukashenko tried to calm a nervous nation by stating that general mobilization was not in the cards and that the nation was not interested in war. The illegitimate president threatened Ukraine and the Kyiv government as smoke rose over at least a dozen cities from the Russian missile attacks, saying, quote, Prove to the president of Ukraine and other crazy people that the Crimean Bridge will seem like an opening act to them if they touch even one meter of our territory with their dirty hands. End quote. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minor graphic detail in today's report, and if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Over 10 Russian missiles struck Zaporizhia on October 8th, killing 14 and wounding 88, including children. At least one missile struck a nine-story apartment building, collapsing six floors. Two more floors collapsed as rescuers attempted to find victims in the rubble. The blast smashed almost all the apartments and set cars in the parking lot on fire. A follow-on attack killed another civilian and wounded five more, including a child who was severely injured by flying glass. A reliable source alleged that the Russian Air Force attacked a group of six civilian vehicles waiting to cross the Inulets River into free Ukraine. The attack killed six and wounded many. A civilian was killed in the Miropilia Romana in the Sumy Oblast after a kamikaze drone struck her. A graphic video shot moments after Russian cruise missiles and kamikaze drones started striking Kyiv showed at least one dead civilian lying in the street. Officials report, quote, several people were killed and at least 20 wounded during the morning attacks. Other graphic pictures are starting to emerge from the attack, showing the dead lying in the street and bloodied pensioners seeking medical attention from emergency services. Officials have exhumed 20 bodies from two mass graves near Liman and have requested war crimes investigators to join the investigation. One site holds over 200 bodies of civilians, including children, in a combination of marked graves, lot numbers, and unmarked. The other mass grave is filled with an undisclosed number of Ukrainian soldiers. Sky News war reporter Alex Crawford wrote that distrust and anger were present in Lehman as humanitarian aid started to arrive. As in other liberated territories, accusations of being collaborators and taking more than a fair share of aid flew among exhausted, hungry, and cold residents. In Mykolaiv, the building of the Admiral Makarov National Shipbuilding University was heavily damaged. There was no evidence the military was using the building, and the intentional targeting of educational facilities is considered a war crime. In geopolitical news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has asked German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to hold an emergency meeting of the G7 due to the ongoing, quote, terrorist attacks against Ukrainians. The German leader has agreed to arrange the emergency meeting where Zelensky plans to speak. No other details were available at the time of recording. In economic news, the ruble opened lower in United States exchange markets with an exchange rate of 63 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices increased after OPEC Plus announced a production cut of 2 million barrels daily 
and the United States stopped its drawdown of the strategic petroleum reserve. WTI crude was trading at $92 a barrel, and Brent had reached $97. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market jumped to $2.74 a gallon, or $0.72 a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures were trading at $9.23 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.